Amen. Well, good morning to Anthem Church and uh, guests and family and friends who may be in town to uh, commission off some of your relatives and friends. And so uh, this morning we are starting in Proverbs 8. So go ahead and turn to Proverbs. We're in the middle of a series on the church. And so this morning we're talking about what is the mission of the church. And we're actually going to look at the mission of God and the story of God in order to best understand what that mission for us as followers of Jesus what that would be for the church. And so in Proverbs 8, we're going to be opening up in uh, verse 22 is where we're starting. And we're going to be seeing uh, what scholars have referenced as this is likely uh, an interaction that Solomon has written down between Christ and the Father before creation. And so let's jump in, see the story of God, the theme of the God that we serve together. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me, blessed are those who keep my ways." Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So since the dawn of creation and even before then, the triune God, Father, Spirit, and Son has been proclaiming and forming. That relationship in and of itself, and as creation starts in Genesis 1, we can see the way in which God speaks and things are created. We can see the way in which the world is formed physically, the way that the waters come up, the way that the skies are formed, putting things in their limit, putting things in their appropriate place. We can see from the beginning of creation, that is our God alive and at work. He is proclaiming and he is forming. We get to the end of Genesis 1 and we can see what is called the creation mandate. Where humanity is given their role and task. He says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Why? Not so that man would be glorified, so that God would be glorified and so that his name would be known. And so we see this theme that God has had of proclamation and formation being given as well to the people that God made in his image. And we can fast forward from there and we can look at the way in which Abraham and his family began to embody that. The way in which that family began to impact the nations around them. As Abraham goes, as Isaac lives his life, as Jacob lives his life, as Joseph lives his life. What are they doing but proclaiming and forming the same story that God had been writing? Look to the God. Look to our creator. 
be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with his glory. And we see that theme in scripture from the beginning. We can see that carried on after Genesis during the time of Exodus. We see where the people of God, they're in bondage. They're in Egypt for 400 some years. God says a re- sends a redeeming figure in Moses, right? To rescue the people, to take them out of that situation. And that's being done so that they would proclaim the glorious God who came and rescued them. And so Moses and Aaron and Joshua, as they lead out to proclaiming and forming the people of God to do the same. And from there they go to the land of promise. Moses doesn't get to make it because he did some no-no's. And then they get to the land of promise, right? And, And what happens there? There are rulers in time that are set up, judges that are set up. And God uses those figures to help direct and correct the people to keep after that same mission of proclaiming and forming. And so we can see that in Deborah. We can see that in Gideon. We can see that in Samuel. Correcting and encouraging and showing the people this is what God's called us to be. We're to be fruitful. We're to multiply. We're to fill the earth. We're to proclaim. We're to form. And from the time of Judges, it becomes the time of the kings. The Lord works through Saul, David, Solomon, all the way to Jehoiakim, the last king. And when they're not doing a good job of proclaiming and forming the people around them, God sends prophets, guides, and messengers to the people so that they would be able to be guided, even if the ruler of the land was misguided. And prophets play the same role all the way to the last one. And then we get to the New Testament and we think, oh, it's a different story. This is something new. But it's all about proclamation and formation. John the Baptist shows up on the scene, draws people into the wilderness. And what does he do there? He calls people to repent and believe, to be baptized, to confess their sin, to give their lives to God. And he sets up the way for Jesus. And Jesus comes and says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is here in me. Proclamation and formation from the start to the time of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to be in Matthew 28, and we're going to see how that same proclamation and formation theme all throughout Scripture is continued through the people that is the local church, through the work of the Spirit. And so this morning, the big idea going to throw a vocabulary word out there for us that I usually wouldn't put, but this idea of enculturation, the story of God and the spirit of God enculturates, which means forms, adapts, and patterns the church to make disciples. And so we're going to see how the whole theme of scripture through the spirit of God is equipping and enculturating our hearts, our identity as the people of God to make disciples. That's what we're here for. If you're coming to church this morning and you're not sure, what's the church here for? This morning we're going to learn what the church is here for, to go and make disciples. And so I'm going to pray for us and we're going to walk through Matthew 28 and see the Lord's great commission of us. So God, I just pray over the next few minutes that we would be able to understand from your word that you have been proclaiming and forming since the dawn of creation and Lord, you call us to do the same. God, I pray that our hearts right now would be humble that your spirit would guide us to new understandings, that your spirit would remind our hearts that we are here 
because of you, that we are here to live for your glory, and that as we gather as a body, Lord, we would just be reminded and encouraged and directed this season in our life to also be proclaimers and formers for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll go ahead and turn to Matthew 28. We're going to be reading through uh, verses 1 to 20, so uh, get ready for that ride. And as you guys are turning there, uh, I'll just give a, a little bit of contextual help. So Matthew, the tax collector, has written this gospel. It's a, a Greco-Roman biography of Jesus, one of the four gospels that we have. And within this book, he's helping the Jewish people connect the story of Israel to the story of Jesus. And so this morning, as we go through Matthew 28, we can go into it understanding, okay, Jesus has just died, and now we're entering what is the resurrection and the Great Commission. And so let's read Matthew 28 with that in mind. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the And so the first thing we have to notice in here is that the story of God did not end with Jesus in the grave. It did not end with Jesus living his life on earth, having a, a following of people, having some disciples, and then he gets put on a tree, dies, and stays in the grave. No, the first thing we have to notice here in the text is that the story of God does not end with Jesus in the grave. Matthew's written, Behold, which means pause, stop, wait, notice, so that the reader would look at what's next. Behold, and then what happens? There's an angel that comes, there's some sort of earthquake, whirlwind, some gale force wind, and an angel is there. And the stone 
is rolled away. And these women who show up expecting, you know, to, to be bringing some flowers and some scents and smells to help cover the smell of death, what do they find? They find a scene that they were not asking for, that they were not expecting, but a scene that they were thankful for because they see that God is a God of life and not death. And Jesus was not remaining in the grave. And so behold, he has risen is what the angel shares and if they're doubting in that moment, he, he corrects that doubt pretty quickly. And he's like, I can show you where he was laying. He's not there. And so the first thing we have to see and notice is that the story of God does not end with Jesus in the grave. I know it was just Easter a few weeks back. And you're like, why are you bringing up the resurrection? It's important. We're going to talk about it a lot. And so the story of God did not end with Jesus in the grave. The next thing we can see here in the text is that the theme of the resurrection is all about proclamation. Let's look at verse 7. The angel says, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so right there out of the gate, the, the, the women, they see this. They've experienced this. They understand, okay, apparently he has risen and the angel, after helping them not be in such fear, then gives them a proclamation and says, hey, go, go and tell. Go and tell the disciples. Take this message, take this good news, and deliver it. And so the, the ladies hear it, and they're like, all right, like, we get it. The Spirit of God is alive and at work. And they start to go. They, they start to go tell. And who do they run into? Jesus. And he says, greetings, and they have a moment. They worship him. And then what are Jesus' words to them? Hey, go and tell. Go and tell the others. Take this good news forward that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so they go. And we know from other gospels that they go and tell more people. And then we get to this mountaintop scene, which uh, a lot of scholars say, yeah, that, that happens a few weeks later. Different thoughts on that. Point being, though, they, they, they share this message, they go and tell, they proclaim, okay, Jesus has risen, and we're actually going to be able to see him at this mountaintop in Galilee. And Jesus, knowing that this is some of the last words, not the last words, but some of the last words that he is going to share with them, comes with a message, comes with fire, and he helps the church know what they're there for. And so let's read 16 to 20 and see what Jesus says. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Some scholars would say, yep, and there was more than just the disciples there. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all all that I have commanded you. And behold, pause, stop, and notice, realize this, I am with you always to the end of the age. I don't know if you've been around people before in their last moments or the last weeks around here on earth. I know for me, I, I remember being in the hospital room when my grandma passed away. And I remember some of those last conversations are important conversations and so Jesus here, having an important conversation with his followers, says, proclaim. 
form. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And they hear the message. Okay, this is, this is the call of the church. And we can see that affirmed in the other gospels. Jesus has interactions in the book of John with the disciples and he's equipping them and helping them see, okay, as the Father has sent me here on earth with a mission, so I am sending you. We can see his last interactions with Peter. Jesus goes on repeat like three times in a row. Peter, feed my sheep. Love the church. Care for the church. Be ready to proclaim. Be ready to form the people around you. Jesus, with foresight, knowing that hard times were going to come for the church, proclaiming and forming Peter in that moment to take the mission forward. And then we can see in the, the book of Acts, Jesus' last interaction on earth that we know of. He's with a crowd of people. And in Acts 1.8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. God's mission since before the garden, at the garden, throughout the Old Testament, at the grave, after the grave, has been proclaimed in form over and over. We see that theme in Scripture and then we see Jesus speaking those same words over his followers in the last days, in the last moments, so that they would know what they as a church were to do. Carry the message forward. The book of Acts is a record of the acts within the apostles in the early church. And we can get to the end of that book. It was all about the local church in its early years. And we can see an account of what that looked like through Paul in Acts 28. It says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. Okay, so we can see they've been sending that message forward to not just Jewish people, but to people outside of their community. They will listen. He, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so we can see the story of God and the spirit of God is enculturating the church to go and make disciples through proclamation and formation. And it seems so simple, right? It seems very straightforward. Okay, we can understand. Jesus lived his life, fulfilled the Father's will, through living a perfect life. He dies, he's resurrected. And as Jesus goes, he gives them the command, straightforward, simple. But what is the world's response? So often bend to that. Like the first thing we can see in Matthew 28 is some people are denying it. We can know from Matthew 27 that, that even before the resurrection happens, the religious leaders, fearing that the resurrection could happen, fearing that the disciples would maybe be right, they have an interaction with Pilate where it's like, hey, like, we got some money for a cover-up story if we need that. We're going to deny that this thing happened. Resurrection happens, and then we see what happens in verses 11 to 15. 
While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And so there are many during that time and since then and in our day now where denial is how the world receives it. It's like, no, that didn't happen. That's not a reality. There's no potential for that. How could, how could God come to earth? How could he live this life and be resurrected? And if so, even if he could do that, how does that have anything to do with me? I'm going to deny Christianity. I'm going to deny Jesus. And that's how some have interpreted it. And I've been in that spot before, and, and I've questioned, Lord, like, could this, could this be different? And that's a hard spot to be. But God calls us to keep pursuing. And so some deny we know, too, that, that others neglect. They maybe have acknowledged that the, the resurrection was a thing, that it happened. But it's, uh, I'm, I'm actually just going to neglect that good news. And we can see in Romans 1 where that takes people. For those who neglect and suppress truth, Romans 1, it says, By their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so some deny, and others neglect. And even beyond that, much of the world's response even still has been ignorance. And that's the, the saddest one to know, but the sweetest thing for the church to then move forward with. Right? There's a lot of people in this world who have never heard the good news of Jesus. They might be able to see the effects of God in creation. They might be able to understand that there is beauty here. There is purpose here. They might be able to understand that, yeah, it would make sense for there to be a God. But maybe they have never heard of the good news of Christ. They haven't heard of God's story of proclamation and formation since the beginning. They haven't heard that Jesus is resurrected. They have no idea what that could mean for their life. And so some are walking in ignorance. And that's why we send from this church to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Because we see that need. In Romans 10, it talks about those who are in a place of ignorance. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And so throughout the world today, we see people who struggle with belief, struggle with understanding. Some are denying it, some are neglecting it, and there are a whole slew of people all throughout the world that just don't understand it and have never heard it. So for the call of the the church, it's so simple and it's so clear. Jesus has given them this message, take it forward. 
And Matthew gives that account too and, and says, no, you're not just taking this forward on your own, by your own power, it's through the Spirit. And the last verse of Matthew 28, he's saying, behold, and I am with you always, even to the end of this age. And so the church hears the mission, they know and understand that they're to go. Yet sadly, in the world, there's much denial and neglect and ignorance. And so that's been the world's response to the resurrection, to the story of God, to the Great Commission. What about the church? How has the church throughout history done with the Great Commission, with the story of God, and with the resurrection? I'm going to go into history teacher mode a little bit. I was a history teacher for a year. I'm going to throw some diagrams up here. And we're going to look at what the history of the church with the Great Commission and resurrection has looked like. At times, pretty, beautiful thing. We're running straight. We're doing well. And then a lot of other times, the church has struggled with the simplicity of the Great Commission to go. And so I read a book a couple years ago uh, called, it has a long name, something about spiritual dynamics of renewal. Richard Lovelace wrote it. It talks about this ebb and flow throughout history of the church. How at times the church does a really great job of being on mission, and at other times there's this big spectrum where the church is either being fused to the culture and they're letting the culture guide the church. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's been times in history, often and even still, where the church secludes itself completely from culture. And so the first term that you'll see up here on the screen is destructive enculturation. When the church is fused to the city, the, the picture kind of shows that, right? When you're in the same mission and same circle of the place that you're trying to influence and impact, destructive enculturation is when the world begins to influence the church. And we've seen that all throughout history. And a lot of us have seen that in our own lives as well. Maybe seasons where you were like, yeah, actually I was very fused to the culture at that point in my walk with the Lord. And I said, yep, love Jesus on Sundays. And then every other hour of the week, I was running wild. And so it's not just a, a church thing, it's a personal thing too. But looking at destructive enculturation throughout history, we can see in the example of Corinth, Paul wrote two letters, at least to the church in Corinth. And what they were struggling with, they were allowing incest in their church body. Rather than believers working through things with one another, they were filing lawsuits legally against one another. And we can see in 1 Corinthians 15, they even go so far to deny the resurrection. Why? Because the culture that they were around was having heavy influence on the church rather than the book of God having influence on the church, rather than the godly leaders there having influence on the church. And so the church was spiraling. And so Paul writes a letter and reminds, hey, well, what's the mission? What are we here for? And coaches and rebukes and encourages the church to be about God's mission and not to be fused to the city. And so we see that happen in Corinth. It happens in other churches throughout that time. Fast forward to Rome, okay? 300, Constantine is put into power. And even though Christianity had been full of persecution, suddenly there's a, a part in history in that part of the world where Christianity is popularized. 
because of the governmental leader that says, hey, I'm a Christian. What if we turn Christianity into this really sweet thing for our country, for our people, for our empire? Which at first, it's like, oh, less persecution in the church. Great thing. And then it turns and morphs into political leaders beginning to have heavy influence. The leaders in the church actually are the political leaders. And the vision of the church spirals off course because they're fused with the culture. They're fused with the vision of Constantine, with the empire, rather than with the mission of God. And so during that time, the the church body loses less and less responsibility in the church. They lose their vision, they lose their mission, and the leaders simply use their place for the good of their country and the good of their vision and mission. And so the gospel sacrifice, the gospel simplicity that was in the local church at that time began to be skewed. And so we fast forward from there to the time of the Crusades. Sometimes the Crusades were helpful. They were, they were protecting innocent lives. Other times, though, there were leaders who had their vision, their mission that they wanted to drive forward. Maybe it was for militarism. Maybe it was for their own selfish gain. Maybe it was for more land. And during that time, the church is tempted. Okay, what are we going to be about? What's our mission here? Is it for this crusade? Is it for that trip? Is it for that journey? We can go from there and look at what I've called the age of progress. That includes age of exploration, talking about the Renaissance, industrialization, the transition into modernity. During that time, the church is tempted over and over to become about whatever the cultural thing is. Oh, age of exploration, like, let's build a boat, and like, let's just go, and let's take some new lands. There's unfound places in the world, and they run after that. And the church is tested. During the Renaissance, it's, it's the beautification of art and, and bringing that to the forefront. Scholarship. And the church is tested. Industrialization. Hey, it's all about production. The church is tested. The race for Africa. On and on we could go. The church has struggled with being fused to the culture. And rather than being about the story of God, this gospel good news, they latch on to whatever the culture is talking about. And so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is more so this protective enculturation or divorced with the culture. And so the church sees the culture and they're like, oh wow, that, that is tough. We don't want to work with that. And it's this isolationist mentality. Maybe it's a a heavy focus on works-based religion where it's like, wow, everything out there is messy, so I'm just going to try to be really clean and do everything I need to within my own little bubble here. Even if there's billions of other people in the world, I'm just going to hole up and, and have this really cool little place called home. And then they get that in their home. Maybe they get that in their local church. And then it just stays and stifles proclamation and formation to the world outside of them. 
And so I think it's safe to say we could say Galatia was in that spot at times where they were looking too closely at works and, and trying to just do everything right, not realizing that they are saved by faith. We can look at the monastic movement, okay, right after the, the time of Constantine, there was this awareness in the church of, okay, uh, the government's suddenly very integrated with Christianity and we don't want to follow after that, so what if we just run to the woods? And though in part, monasticism was helpful in in just protecting scripture. There was also this other side of it where it was diverting the church from the mission. And we see that in part in the separatist movement as people sail away from countries and go to new lands. Part of that was because they wanted more people to know, love, and obey Jesus. Part of that was they were fleeing something that was difficult. And they lost mission there, and we see that today still. There's some denominations and churches that are, are, are too focused and okay, like we're just going to try to do everything perfect here, and there's a world out there, but we're not going to lift our eyes and look at it. We're just going to worry about us. And at times that can be what I grew up in, where it's more of what I'll call like a Baptistic legalism. It's not always the case within Baptist churches. I'm not making a big statement of that partnered with the Southern Baptist Convention. But at times in the, in the school that I grew up in, it, it just really felt like, hey, Nick, if you want to be a good believer, you just make sure you never go to this place, never go to that place. Make sure that, you know, you, you are just doing a good job of respect, respecting your parents. And what was coached and encouraged around me at times just very much felt like they were saying, hey, just make a nice little world and live in it, in your family unit and in your church unit. But what you lose with that, that protective mentality, is that going forward, that proclamation, that formation of people who need it. Because the world is lost and hurting. And so we see that throughout church history, that has been a struggle. And so what's God's design for the church. God's design for the church would be that we would be on mission. That we would understand the gospel story. That we would understand that God has been proclaiming and forming since the beginning of creation so that we would know, love, and obey him. And we're to understand that as a church body. We're to understand that as individuals. And in light of God's goodness of rescuing you out of darkness, rescuing me out of darkness, we then go, therefore, into the world. Okay, so we have the culture around us. We, we spend time figuring out, okay, what, what are the things that trip up culture right now? We learn what those things are. We understand the people that we're living around. We, we try to empathize which, with where people are coming from. We see and notice, okay, this is the world. This is kind of our sin struggle right now. This is what people are turning to rather than Christ. We learn what those things are. And we take the simple gospel message forward and to them in love. We be storytellers of the good news of Jesus. And we, through the Spirit of God, look to form people around us. To be in a personal relationship with Jesus. To be part of his church. That's God's design for the church we struggle with it. 
his attention to manage. Sometimes you, you do maybe need to be in a season where you're spending more time in the word, more time around fellow believers, being encouraged before you get sent out. Sometimes you're in a season where it's a little bit more, okay, we're looking in, we're looking at my heart, we're understanding where I'm coming from, we're understanding my family. And we're bringing the gospel into that. Sometimes that's the season. But as a whole, God's design for the church is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's his plan. And so this morning, the, the question to ask yourself is what do I do with the story of God, the resurrection, and the mission of the church? Am I someone who tends to maybe huddle up a little too tight and I don't think about the world out there? Am I someone who maybe is living a little too loosely with the world and I'm letting the world guide me rather than scripture guide me? Or by the grace of God, maybe you're in a spot where it's like, man, I I get the middle, I'm in the middle, and I'm running after that. Ask yourself, where am I at on that spectrum? Where did I come from? Where, Where am I at now? But more importantly, what does God's word call me to do? And so the reality is we all come from different places. There's a good number of people in this room, and therefore there's probably a good number of places that we're all at. But regardless of that, we see from God's word this call to know and love him, to be in relationship with God through Christ by the work of his spirit. And so for some of you this morning, it is taking that step of faith, admitting that you are a sinner, admitting that you're in a spot of brokenness where you need a guide in your life, and it's surrendering to Christ, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And maybe that's where you're at. I've been in that place before. It's a hard spot. I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. I don't want to admit that I don't get the mission. But through that brokenness, God redeems, he saves, he delights in us and pulls us out and brings us into his family. This morning, maybe that's you. Maybe you're in a spot where you've been running a little wild and it's okay, God's word calls me to not live like that. I want to be on mission. I want to be proclaiming and forming people around me to know, love, and obey Jesus more and more. And that means I need to say no to this so that I can say yes to his mission. And it's walking away from certain sin. And others, maybe you had more of a a Christian upbringing. That's more of the fabric that I came from. And it's figuring out, hey, maybe, maybe the Great Commission It's a lot more simple and really does call me to go in a way that I haven't been. And may God bring you to a place of humility to realize that and to be on mission with him. And so at Anthem, that's our our Sundays. We're here because we want to gather with a group of believers to equip one another, to encourage one another, to worship the Lord so that we might be able to fill his mission as we live our lives. That's why we gather. We encourage a smaller group setting because a person talking up here might not always be the best person to reach out to or might not always be the person to listen. And that's why smaller group communities is a great spot to ask one another, okay, like where are you at on that spectrum? What does your mission look like with your family, with your workplace? That's why we encourage small groups 
why we encourage people to be discipled. A good question to ask yourself is, okay, am I someone who is being guided by someone else a little older in the faith so I may know how to pursue God more faithfully so I might understand his mission more clearly? Do you have someone helping guide you to Christ? And if that answer is a yes, then also ask, okay, am I guiding anyone else around me? Is discipleship a part of my lifestyle? Is there someone that consistently meets with me? And we talk about hard stuff, good stuff, exciting stuff. And with them, you encourage them to read God's word. You walk with them in times of pain. And so this morning, that's, that's a question. Where am I at? Where am I at on that spectrum? And God, would you help me to see from your word how to fulfill your mission and not my own in a way that's more faithful? The story of God and the spirit of God enculturates us as the church to go and make disciples. And may we do that this year, next year, and for the rest of eternity. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, we, uh, we thank you uh, that your word is instruction. Your word is encouragement. Your word is direction for our lives. God, we are, are broken people who need guidance. And Lord, your word is that for us. Through your spirit, God, I pray that this morning conviction would be felt in our hearts and understood in our hearts. And God, would we be humble enough to walk away from maybe some disobedience, who'd walk away from trying to create our own mission, that we would walk away from being fused to culture, that we would walk away from trying to create our own little perfect cell. But God, would we understand you from your word? Would we join in partnership with fellow believers and would we move forward in the great commission that you have given us? We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.